The following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Well, let's turn our Bibles to uh, Isaiah again. And uh, we're going to read scripture there in Isaiah, carrying on from where we were this morning. I wanted to get to chapter 11, but we have to go through chapter 10. I don't. I don't believe in skipping chapters. I know you don't either, so we have to go in order here in our reading to pick up all of them and not forget any. Isaiah chapter 10, we saw a great, great time of, uh, of light to come to Israel in verses 1 through 7 of the prior chapter, and then a time of punishment on Samaria in <clears throat> verses 8 through the end of chapter 9, and now we come to verse 1 of chapter 10. Woe to those who decree unrighteous decrees, who write misfortune, which they have prescribed to rob the needy of justice and to take what is right from the poor of my people. The widows may be their prey and that they may rob the fatherless. What will you do in the day of punishment and in the desolation which will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help? And where will you leave your glory? Without me they shall bow down among the prisoners and they shall fall among the slain. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. Still, God is going to judge. kind of reminds you of the passages where God talks about, uh, oh, for three transgressions and for four, I will, or I will, I will yet punish you seven times for your sin and then seven more times. Yeah, the, the folks uh, here were very... Uh, intransigent in their rebellion and it took a lot for God to get their attention or just to mete out punishment that was due to them. Verse 5, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger and the staff in whose hand is my indignation. I will send him against an ungodly nation and against the people of my wrath I will give him charge to seize the spoil, to take the prey and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. Yet he does not mean so, nor does his heart think so, but it is in his heart to destroy and cut off not a few nations. You understand what that verse means? Okay, it's, it's the idea of, the, of God is to use this instrument to mete out a certain amount of wrath. But the instrument, Assyria, like Babylon later on, will go too far. Edom will do the same uh, or had done the same. And so God's going to have to uh, use them or punish them for their going beyond uh, his decree. His, well, his decree isn't a bad, bad way of saying it, but his, his uh, instructions to them is what I mean. Verse 8, For he says, Are not my princes altogether kings? <clears throat> is not Calno like uh, Carchemish? Is not Hamath like Arpad? Is not Samaria like Damascus? As my hand has found the kingdoms of the idols whose carved images excelled those of Jerusalem and Samaria, as I have done to Samaria and her idols, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols? Therefore it shall come to pass when the Lord has performed all His work on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem that He will say, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the glory of his haughty looks. For He says, by the strength of my hand I have done it. By my wisdom, for I am prudent. Also, I have removed the boundaries of the people and have robbed their treasuries. Shall I put down? So, sorry. So I have put down the inhabitants like a valiant man. My hand is found. 
like a nest the riches of the people. And as one gathers eggs that are left, I have gathered all the earth. And there is no one who moved his wing nor opened his mouth with even a peep. And listen to this, verse 15. Shall the axe boast itself against him who chops with it? Or shall the saw exalt itself against him who saws with it? As if a rod could wield itself against those who lift it up, or as if a staff could lift up as if it were not wood. Therefore, the Lord, the Lord of hosts will send leanness among his fat ones, and under his glory he will kindle a burning like the burning of a fire. So the light of Israel will be for a fire and his holy one for a flame. It will burn and devour his thorns and briars in one day, and it will consume the glory of his forest and of his fruitful field, both soul and body. And they will be as when a sick man wastes away. Then the rest of the trees of his forest will be so few in number that a child may write them. And it shall come to pass in that day that the remnant of Israel and such as have escaped of the house of Jacob will never again depend on him who defeated them, but will depend on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. The remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people, O Israel, be as the sand of the sea, a remnant of them will return. The destruction decreed shall overflow with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts will make a determined end in the midst of all the land. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, do not be afraid of the Assyrian. He shall strike you with a rod and lift up his staff against you in the manner of Egypt. For yet a very little while, and the indignation will cease, as will my anger in their destruction. And the Lord of hosts will stir up a scourge for him, like the slaughter of Midian at the rock of Oreb. As his rod was on the sea, so will he lift it up in the manner of Egypt. It shall come to pass in that day that his burden will be taken away from your shoulder and his yoke from your neck, and the yoke will be destroyed because of the anointing oil. He has come to Aiath. He has passed Migron. At Michmash, he has attended to his equipment. They have gone along the ridge. They have taken up lodging at Geba. Ramah is afraid. Gibeah of Saul has fled. Lift up your voice, O daughter of Galim. Cause it to be heard as far as Laish, O poor Anathoth. Madmanah has fled. The inhabitants of Gebim seek refuge. As yet, he will remain at Nob that day. He will shake his fist at the mount of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. Behold, the Lord, the Lord of hosts, will lop off the bow with terror. Those of high stature will be hewn down and the haughty will be humbled. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with iron and Lebanon will fall by the mighty one. Isaiah chapter 10. Well, may the Lord bless that reading of His Word tonight. Trust that He will. Okay. Well, I wonder, we were going to do some Bible Q&A tonight if you have any. I don't see anybody has privately uh, sent a message over to me yet, so that means that I don't have any questions to bring to your attention, I don't think. Uh, remind me of that question yesterday. Oh, yes, Jeconiah. Um, we dealt with him a bit this morning uh, in Jeremiah 22. We can touch on that again. Jeremiah 22. This is one of these 
troubling uh, portions of Scripture. All right, Jeremiah 22. Um, yeah, the, uh, some of the gentlemen yesterday had a question on this, and we worked through some of this this morning in our Sunday school class relevant to the Luke 3 genealogies where we really focused there. But uh, we're talking about uh, this king named Coniah, and uh, you should uh, look him up on a list of kings in, the, in your study Bible, and you can kind of uh, position him in your mind as to where he goes in the sequence of events in the timeline uh, regarding the uh, deportation and so on. But starting in Jeremiah 22, verse number 24. As I live, says the Lord, though Coniah the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet signet on my right hand, yet I would pluck you off. And I will give you into the hand of those who seek your life and into the hand of those whose face you fear, the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and the hand of the Chaldeans. That did come about. So I will cast you out and your mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you will die. I don't know if you understand that, the ignominy of that, but for a a Jewish person, and and maybe more generally too I could say this, I don't want to broad brush or be guilty of of, uh, overgeneralization, but a lot of people in that region of the world, even to this day, find it very important to emphasize land, property, where they live. And we have something of that still kind of instilled in us. I think it's natural to have a, an affinity for where you were born, where you were raised. You want to go back there and live out your last years there or whatever the case is. Um, but to leave the nation, the land of Israel, was like that was to depart from the temple, to depart from, the, from God, to depart from the promises of God, the blessings of God and all of that because that meant curse according to the Old Testament law. Verse 27, But to the land which they desire to return, there they shall not return. Is this man, Coniah, a despised, broken idol, a vessel in which is no pleasure? Why are they cast out, he and his descendants, and cast into a land which they do not know? Well, the answer, we know why. O earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord, says, thus says the Lord, Verse 30, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not prosper in his days, for none of his descendants shall prosper sitting on the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. There it is. So it appears that the kingly line of David has um, come to an end, in effect, uh, because David down through Solomon, all the way down to this Jeconiah. And you know there are many evil kings along that course of kings. Uh, they weren't all you know, goody two-shoes, many of them very evil. And um, so, in any case, um, we, uh, we see this fellow is written down as childless, a man who shall not prosper in his days, for none of his descendants shall prosper sitting on the throne of David and ruling anymore in in uh, Judah. Don't worry about it, John. Yeah, it's no big deal. Okay. Um, so we're just dealing with a technical issue here. Um, <clears throat> all right, so what does that do to us then? If you see in Matthew's Gospel, the genealogy, you have Jeconiah there in the genealogy of Christ going down all the way to Joseph. Um, Joseph is tainted evidently by the Jeconiah curse. 
and is therefore not qualified to be on the throne of Israel. That's, uh, that's rough. But there's another complication, and that complication is, as we saw this morning at some length, and I'll let you listen to that message. If you're online, you can pick that up easily. Um, that there, the two genealogies, that of Joseph and that of Mary, converge, and they converge at Shealtiel and Zerubbabel, but they also are after Jeconiah. And so Jeconiah, if you take this curse as it's written here, could actually that curse could kind of flow down through both sides of the genealogy. And the only way to, uh, to, for God to um, provide a savior and a king that would fit the, uh, the requirements of a Davidic king would be a virgin birth. There's no other way for that to to be uh, satisfied. So in that way, Jesus can be said to be legally down through uh, Joseph's uh, line, uh, through David and Solomon, and also genealogically through Mary, uh, connected to that that king, uh, that kingship, but he is not tainted by the curse on the man himself. The miracle of the divine uh, intervention in the birth of Christ. I'm not totally satisfied, as I said, with that explanation from this morning, but it is uh, it is something. Yes, follow up to that. Well, yeah, that's interesting. He is a son of. Well, he's not a son of Joseph. We know that. So, what does that do to anybody before, you know, him? Um, so it says in Matthew's gospel. It tells us that, it says here, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. So it says he's the son of David, so I'll take that. That's good enough for me. Uh, and a son of Abraham as well. But how is he a son of David? Well, Joseph, indeed through Joseph, it's, one of these, it's very strange. It's just an odd, an odd situation. He is a son of David. He is a son of Joseph. He is... A son of Jeconiah, in, in, by uh, how can you say, uh, you know, by default, yeah, because uh, he's not biologically that way, but he is, because as soon as Joseph married Mary, all of her offspring became his offspring. You know, that's just how it worked. We call it an adoption. They didn't go to uh, you know family court to get an adoption, but that's not how they did it back then, as I alluded to this morning. It was just done within families. They just quote unquote did the right thing, and uh, you know brothers or uncles or whoever the family just took up the care of a widow and her children so that they would not be destitute. That's just all that had to happen. And um, so <clears throat> this was a little different situation, of course, because Mary was just starting out and uh, having her first son here, Jesus. So. Uh, yeah, this is, a, this is a bit of a complication. You could say Jesus is the son of Mary also, although you know the intervention by God miraculously, which I believe connected him you know, biologically somehow to her, had to to make him a connected human into the human race. Um, you know, I, don't, I don't just think that Mary was a surrogate mother, but... Other people disagree with that. I mean, they actually, oh yeah, some people would say that that uh, Jesus was, uh, the zygote Jesus was implanted into the mother, like 
came from totally somewhere else. I mean, like, you know, right, and she's just a surrogate. Uh, instead of him being organically, biologically connected to the human race, could God do that? Yes, but it just has seemed to me like there's some more real connection than that. So we know that he had to be human, and we don't want to, to uh, form a theology in which Jesus has become what we call a third thing. He's not God, he's not man, he's a Martian or something. That's not at all right. He's God and he's man in, in truth and fully so. So, in any case, that is uh, that, is that question. <clears throat> Actually, yeah, that's okay. Go ahead. Okay, a different question now. Pause one second. So, John, at this point, why don't you... Hit the record for me, okay? All right. Well, we start at this point to pick up our questions. So we have a follow-up question then. Right. Okay, so Thurman's question is, is Jeconiah related to Joseph only or to Mary and to Joseph? So I think we're settled on the question that Jeconiah is connected to Joseph somehow. Matthew's genealogy makes that clear. If you go to Luke's genealogy, Luke chapter 3, and we're going to trace this down here. I don't have my uh, handouts that I had this morning with me, but we're going to look at this and we're going to see in verse 27... In verse 27 of Luke 3, you're going to see a couple of names there that we saw in also in um, Matthew's genealogy. So in verse 27 of chapter 3 in Luke, you see uh, the son of uh, jo- Joannes, the son of Risa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi. Now, the name Jeconiah does not appear there, but something odd appears there. Thurman, and that is that Neri has an offspring called Shealtiel, who has an offspring called Zerubbabel. But Matthew's Gospel has Jeconiah giving birth to or begetting Shealtiel, who has then Zerubbabel. Okay, so unless we have two generations with the very same names, which I don't think is realistic, we have a situation where the genealogies separate at David, Solomon on one side, Nathan on the other. They go down, family trees go down, and then they rejoin after Jeconiah. And so anything after Jeconiah then is going to be possibly tainted by this curse. That was my kind of my one of my finds, if you will, my discoveries in my study for this time through this. Uh, every every you know few years, I'll take another crack at this. And, and look at it. And uh, so that was something that the, this conjoining of the two genealogies and then the resplitting of them causes this, this problem. And that's why the issue of leveret marriage came in because 
it was, it was, I used it as a way of explaining how did the lines join and then split apart again. And that is that Neri had a daughter who's not listed here who married Jeconiah. They had a, they had a child named the Shealtiel, if I have my diagram right in my head. And then it went on, uh, and, and, and then, uh, and then someone else and, Shealtiel died childless. Then there was a leveret marriage that produced Zerubbabel. So it kind of makes your head spin a little bit. And I hope I didn't lose too many people with that, but that's the situation. So. That's correct. Right. Well, it's, it, there's something about it Something has to be right about this conjoining and then splitting again. You've got to come up with some explanation of that. And so I've got a somewhat satisfying explanation. The trouble for me is this Jeconiah curse business bothers my soul, you know, because now it's, it's a worse problem than what I even had thought before. I thought it was just on the one side, you know, the Joseph side. But this conjoining with Jeconiah and everything and... <clears throat> The virgin birth is the answer to all this, right? Yeah. Yes. Yes, sir. Follow up to this. Um. My understanding was that he is the biological son of Jeconiah, but he's one generation removed from Neri. <clears throat> you see, the problem is Neri is listed as the forefather of Shealtiel in the one genealogy, but Jeconiah is listed as the forefather in the other genealogy. So, what do you do about that? I mean, is there, of course, we don't say there's an error in the scriptures. Obviously not. So um, let me go down and trace. Yeah, in Matthew one twelve, Jeconiah begot Shealtiel, and in uh, Luke it was Neri who was the father of Shealtiel. Well, the forefather. And so I think what happened was that Jeconiah uh, did have Shealtiel as a son. Shealtiel uh, married, died didn't have any kids, leveret marriage occurred and raised up Zerubbabel to uh, follow in Shealtiel's line. That's what leveret marriage did. It provided a, an heir when the man did not produce an heir himself because, again, land, property, family name, propagation through the history of Israel was very important to them. So... I'll, I'll have you look at the notes to catch to catch the fuller, uh, you know, explanation of that. And I've got a little diagram in there that shows this proposed reconstruction. Is it right? Oh, you're looking at it. There you go. So the red boxes on that diagram are my, I will say, speculation. But there's something that seems to work and fits things together. It does add the complication of the Jeconiah curse. But I'm trying to come up with uh, kind of an Occam's razor, uh, simplest explanation, and not have like three different leveret marriages and all kinds of crazy stuff going on to make this happen, although I can't guarantee that uh, my reconstruction is correct with my current level of uh, 
language or uh, facility with all the information. I'm just not 100% sure. So, all right, very well. Yes, another question? Yeah. So the question is about Zerubbabel and his prominent place in Ezra and that whole time period, Ezra and Nehemiah there. Um, was he not king or uh, did the curse not apply to him or something? And so my understanding, now I'll give you one kind of side note. Some people say, well, God took the signet ring from Coniah and then he gave it back to Zerubbabel. Um, I don't see that happening myself. But I would answer that question with this brief answer that Zerubbabel was not a king. So he did not prosper on the throne. <clears throat> who was, who was uh, the uh, hegemon over Israel at the time? Well, it was, well, Babylon initially, but then Medo-Persia. And so, I mean, ever since, have they really had a king sitting on the throne since Jeconiah and, and then Zedekiah? Remember when Zedekiah was captured and his eyes were put out and all that nasty stuff. Have they had a king? Yeah, not really. You know, and and they, they were under Medo-Persian domination, Babylonian domination, Medo-Persian domination, Greek domination, the Ptolemies, the intertestamental period, Rome. I mean, just they're just occupied territory all these years. Now they have a situation now. They don't have a king. They have a they have a what do you call it? Kind of a Democratically, democratically elected government, but I don't think anybody would say that Benjamin Netanyahu, for instance, is acting like king. Um, but he's not in the line of, of David as far as we know anyway. So, But in any case, I think it's that he didn't function as king, but he did have some governor um, role as governor. All right. Let me pause this line of questioning and pick up... Uh, my wife mentioned a question to me that somebody had, and I wanted to just answer that question briefly. And the question is um, this. <clears throat> what does it mean to believe in the name of the Lord Jesus when you say uh, you know, to believe in His name? And did you have a passage of Scripture that you were thinking of? Was it Acts chapter 4? Or oh, the end of John you were thinking of? Okay. <clears throat> I was thinking of Acts 4.12, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. But you were, you were actually thinking of the end of John's Gospel. Is that in end of chapter 20? Okay, so 20.30, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of His disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. Is that the verse you were thinking of? Okay, that's John 20 and verse 31. The answer to that question is not hard at all. And it's that you, if you... I mean, I can make it more complicated. Okay, I'll do that just to show you. We can go back to the Old Testament and we, we think about, for instance, when Moses asked God... Who shall who, who 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 are you that's sending me? Whom shall I tell the people of Israel sent me? You know, here I am, Moses. I'm just going to show up on the scene like I did 40 years ago, and and they didn't like me because I killed an Egyptian, and 
and all that. And they go, who are you, Moses? You know, some, some Lord over us. And so he wants to know. And God says, you tell him, I am has sent you. And so that name, the name, to the Jewish person, Hashem is the, the word. Ha is the shame or Shem, we would say, but shame, not S-H-A-M-E, but S-H-E-M, shame, is the name. And that name represents all that God is. So when you say that you're not to take the name of the Lord in vain, that means you're not to treat God with blasphemous and disrespect. He, that is who He is. That represents who He is. Like your family name. Don't shame the family name, son, because that's, that represents who we are as people. And so it is with the name of Jesus. At His name, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. At His name, at the pronunciation of His name, at the proclamation of the name of Jesus, people will have to bow down and worship Him because He is the God of, well, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You know, He is God. And so, when you say believe in the name, it is exactly synonymous with believe in Him. That is, whatever the name represents, that's what you're believing in. So, the name of Jesus means Savior. It means Lord. Uh, it, it means Comforter. It means Shepherd. It means all the things that we know. The door of the sheepfold. All those things. The light. Bread of life. Truth. The way the life, all that stuff, that His name represents. Believing in His name means believing in Him and all that He is. So I hope that's helpful as you think about this and sharing. You know, sometimes we use uh, phrases that we've picked up from Sunday school and we just use it without carefully defining it. But if you go to somebody today who has no background in the Bible and you say, look, believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And what does it mean to believe in a name? Well, that's what it means. It means to believe in Him exactly, who He is, what He's done, His, his person, His work, His offices, prophet, priest, king, Savior, Lord, what He's done, died for our sins, rose again from the dead, everything that that represents. So can I define the name in like a, a short sentence? I, I'm, I tried just now to give you, but it's, it's everything the Scripture tells us about Him. That's the name. So we believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It means we believe in Him or into Him. We entrust ourselves to Him. And what is belief? It's the casting of the full weight of your trust, the full weight of your reliance upon Jesus as Savior. You're putting your soul into His care Utterly and absolutely convinced that He will care for you, He will keep you, He will save you, preserve you, bring you through the judgment because He's taken your judgment and uh, will be with you and all of that. You're casting yourself upon Him and saying, my eternal destiny, it's in His hands, not in my hands. Okay, That's what it means to trust in Him. And I, I pray that if you haven't done that, that you will do that. Trust in Him. Amen. Okay, any other questions that you folks have? Yes, sir. Um, I have a question about another Sunday school study. 
Okay, so the question is about the phrase, Sunday school kind of phrase, uh, inviting Jesus into your heart. I think I might have cut you off just the last few words. Anything else? Okay, so um, I'm just going to go to my scriptures and find the closest thing I can find to that. In verse uh, Ephesians 3 and verse 17. Now, although I'm going to use this verse... <coughs> I'm not going to use it to support the idea that the gospel equals inviting Jesus into your heart. Okay, the Bible never says that that is the biblical response to the preaching of Christ. Okay, so inviting Jesus into your heart has become a way of trying to express to a small child what it means to believe in Jesus. But the Bible doesn't use those terms. Here's, the, here's maybe the closest, Ephesians 3, uh, 17. Paul is praying for the Ephesian believers. Uh, he says, for this reason, as verse 14, for this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, speaking of names, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. <clears throat> that He may dwell in your hearts through faith. And so that's where I think the idea may come from. There's another portion in uh, Revelation 3 that you might be familiar with. And I'm not, I'm not going to be able to put my finger on it necessarily immediately here. In, uh, is it Revelation 3.20? Revelation 3.20 Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. So those two verses are probably the best verses or the closest to that concept of inviting Jesus into your heart. But that idea I'm warning you about is woefully inadequate as a response to the Gospel. What does the Bible say is the proper response to the Gospel? Repent and believe. Repent and believe. So, if a young person understands inviting Jesus into your life to be, repent and believe, okay, I'm not going to get uptight about that. But I'm afraid that too often that's not the case. And that, yeah, children... Then, because we want to make it as easy as we can for our kids to understand the Gospel because we think it's very important. I say we as broad evangelicalism. <clears throat> but we have to understand that the response to the Gospel, whether it's for a child or an adult, is a complete change of mind and heart or represents a complete change of mind and heart. That's not just like, I can invite Jesus into my heart in a in a in in in, in a no transformation, no repentance, no no belief of the of the substance of what the gospel is, and so it has become a dangerous kind of idea. That, and I say dangerous advisedly because it can give people a false assurance. Well, I invited Jesus into my heart when I was a kid. I mean, who's going to argue against that, right? I mean, it sounds nice, and you don't want to criticize somebody for their expression of faith, however small or weak it was at the time. But the reality is, if there's been 
no evidence of transformation. There was no transformation and, and Jesus didn't come and dwell in their hearts through faith as Paul has prayed here. And I think this verse is actually very misused in, to support that idea because Paul is speaking to a bunch of saints in Ephesus and elsewhere. And so they're already saved. But there, there is an, you know, I think there is an idea that is Christ comfortable being connected to your life? I mean, are you living in such a way that, that, that Christ is um, uh, you know, ashamed to be associated with you? Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. Yes, an unintended hazard. It has become that in some people's theology. Right. Be to God. Salvation of the Lord again. Um, you know the yeah, that's right. God has to seek after us in the first place. One of the other issues with this idea of inviting Jesus into your heart, um, and Thurman has alluded to that in what he just said, is that it's by default kind of an Arminian idea that I'm in control of my destiny. I invite or I don't invite. I'm in charge here. And 
Real biblical salvation is a recognition that I'm not in charge here. It's, that's part of it. You know, I'm not the master of my own destiny. I need to submit myself to God in Christ. And so that's another area where you, you don't want to teach your children or anybody a kind of self-autonomous view of what salvation is. You don't want to just kind of morph salvation into something that a, that a self-autonomous rebel against God can kind of accept and not you know, deal with his own sin problem. So, the one that I, I told you that one before, yeah, J. J. Vernon McGee illustrated by the the uh, the young fellow who told the preacher that uh, how, how did he say it now? Do you remember, dear, how he said it? He, oh, he said uh, to the to the pastor, he said, "I got saved." He said, "I I did my part and God did His part." And this pastor is a very wise Calvinist, you know, and he he knows you know salvations of the Lord and. And uh, this young fellow must need a little tweaking in his theology because the, the youngsters, I did my part, you know. And Well, you can't add anything to the gospel, the pastor's thinking. And, and he said, oh, is that so? He said, how did, how, how did that happen? And he said, well, the young man said, well, I, I did my part. I, I ran away from God. And God did his part. He took off after me. <laughs> yeah, my part was the sin part. And God's part was the saving part. That's right. So... It wasn't that the young lad was saying, you know, I did my best to approach God and, you know, he took that and added a little bit of merit to it and I got my way to heaven. Yeah, he was, he, he recognized he totally, he, he was wrong. So, that's a, that's a heartwarming anecdote. Yes. Yes. Yeah. That's true. God is not letting any of His people perish. And He is uh, making sure to run off, run off after those. Well, I mean, that's the example of uh, the parable of the lost sheep, isn't it? The sheep didn't go seeking for the shepherd. He was off in some crazy place of danger and all that, and the shepherd had to go chase him down and, and follow, follow after him. So, a very good word. All right, I know you folks online cannot hear some of those comments and questions. You have to accept our apology for that. We don't, no, not, not too well. We Actually, John could bring the uh, microphone up to any questioners. Uh, is there any other question tonight? If there's not, that's okay. I have actually something I wanted to share, but I don't want to cut anybody off. One of these days, little Matthew will have a question. That will be a little while yet. Right now, he's just checking out the various things at ground level where he's crawling. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Let me uh, share with you something then tonight. Um, there's There are a lot of things going on in our society that are uh, very, very damaging things. Um, and uh, I'm not talking about COVID, and I'm not talking about the election, so put those out of your mind. 
there are dangerous philosophies that are being propagated in the schools and uh, in academia and at colleges, the universities, and they are having a deep and deadly impact upon our culture. And I want to share one with you. Now, this kind of falls into the under the heading of the pat or the um, blog post that I did back in October, which I have still not finished going through with you on the definition of new terminology. We looked last time at what does cancel culture mean, communism. Uh, we looked at socialism, and we ran out of time. It was an, another end of a service kind of thing where I put a little. Uh, plug in for this post for you to go look at it. I just wrote definitions for about a dozen terms that are current today that you've heard uh, anti-racism, critical race theory, cultural revolution, identity politics, uh, social justice, microaggressions, intersectionality, all these sorts of things that are becoming, uh, have become hot terms. And uh, some of us that are more, you know, that are older, uh, that are not, you know, have been removed for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years from the college scene uh, or never have attended uh, or, or been, in, in, you know, influenced by that kind of academia uh, are just kind of, you know, we're, we're off to the side and we're, we're, we're just not with it, as it were. And these ideas, however, are truly affecting the culture and changing the culture in ways that are deadly. I mean deadly, very dangerous for our kids and for the culture at large. And I wanted to share with you a little testimony of somebody who uh, I, I don't know anything about their belief in God, um, but I just wanted to share with you what they uh, found out. They are from, from the inside, as it were. And this is a person who is writing under a pen name, and she says, I have a, it's a woman, I have a PhD in women's studies. Okay, and then she says this interesting phrase, this interesting thing, but I'm not woke anymore. You've heard that phrase, woke. Now that, I don't, do I have that in my little, uh, yeah, I have that in my little dictionary here too, but um, this is interesting. If somebody asks you, should I take any women's studies courses, your immediate answer should be no, absolutely not. No women's studies courses. Uh, if they're required, try to get out of them. Uh, if they are and you can't, then uh, take it and push back. Just get through it. But that's how it, that's how it is. She says, I write under a, a pseudonym because if my colleagues were to find out about my criticisms of this field, I would be unable to find any employment in academia. The fact that someone who critiques the axioms of a field of study feels compelled to write under an assumed name tells you everything you need to know about the authoritarianism underpinning the ideology. You with me so far? She herself is saying, if I gave you my name, my real name, I would be out of luck. Done. Finished. I'm sad to say it, but I believe that critical social justice ideology... Now, she was in women's studies. How did that jump to critical social justice ideology? She's saying they're basically all part of the same ball of wax. That this criminal, uh, critical, <laughs> criminal it is, so, social justice ideology, if not beaten in the war of ideas, will destroy the liberal foundation of American society. By liberal, 
I mean principles including, but not limited to, constitutional Republican government, equality under law, due process, a commitment to reason and science, individual liberty and freedom, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, and freedom of religion. Those will be destroyed if critical social justice ideology is allowed to carry the day. Now, these things were recently removed out of uh, government programs by our current president, but I'm sure they will be put in place by the next administration once again. But it, it, the article goes on. These are just excerpts from this. I have the whole article prints out to 10 pages and I think 14 point text there, um, single space. Uh, she writes, because critical social justice ideology is now the dominant paradigm in American academia, it has flowed into all other major societal institutions, the media, and even corporations. So corporations now, like in California, for example, you have to have a certain number of minorities on your corporate boards in order to uh, be a properly recognized by the government. Far from being countercultural, critical social justice ideology is now the cultural mainstream. And she goes on, I realize that critical social justice ideology is not only intellectually vacuous, it is downright dangerous. And that the reason it has captivated so many minds is not because of the strength of its ideas, but because it has succeeded in silencing more reasonable and time-tested principles. If I had encountered a wider variety of ideas in my undergraduate and especially my graduate education, I would have been spared years of being captive to critical social justice ideology. I would likely have changed my field of study to something more practical. I would have matured more quickly in understanding the complex and sometimes tragic nature of human behavior. And I would have developed a more rational, sustainable understanding of how to live in the world as a decent person outside the narrow framework of being an activist for social justice. This is their Religion, my friends. This is their religion. We have to recognize that this is a religious zeal. It's attached to a religious fervor. Let's go on. There is so little viewpoint diversity in academia that students don't even realize that what they're being taught is an ideology, not factual analysis. I'll just point out, uh, as somebody has recently said, this is me, not the article. Viewpoint diversity is different than diversity. In the university, what has happened is diversity has come to mean 100% leftist thinking with some women and some men and some Hispanics and some blacks and some others. So the diversity comes in like the racial component. But the, 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 the viewpoint diversity is totally absent. If you went to the university and said, look, I'm a, I'm a rock-ribbed conservative Christian and I believe in these principles and I'm going to come in and give you guys something to think about. I'm going to have, give you some viewpoint diversity. You would not be hired. You would not be hired. Even though, even when I was in the university, there was a certain liberal nature of, the, of valuing a diversity of ideas because it sharpened you. you. You had to push back. You had to learn how to communicate with people 
and convince them, persuade them, and listen to their arguments and sharpen your arguments and all those sorts of things. That, that idea of liberal education I can appreciate, even though it's bad enough because there are a bunch of liberal or a bunch of leftist and other ideas that you encounter which are ungodly. You know, ungodly ideas. So, so little viewpoint diversity in academia that students don't even realize that what they're being taught is an ideology, not factual analysis, as Niall Ferguson accurately put it. Listen to this. North American academia is in the grip of a hideous mania. A cross between the early modern witch craze and Mao's cultural revolution in which implacable zealots conduct grotesque show trials, innocent individuals have their reputations, careers, and sanity destroyed, and everyone else cowers, terrified that they will be next to be canceled. The American public university system, especially humanities and social sciences, is a cancer on society as it is teaching students to hate their country and its core values. Now, that is obviously not Bible. Uh, and we're not doing a, a book review here, but I'm doing that to help you to be aware of the times in which we live. We have to be wise as serpents, harmless as doves, of course, but we have to be wise. This article is a very lengthy one, and I would commend it to you if you need the, the link to it and can't find it. Uh, it's on, um, oh, what's it on? New Discourses, I think, is the website. Um, and I can get you that information. But uh, this is very bothersome to me because we're talking about religious freedom. They're coming after us next. Okay? We do not tow their line. And we will not tow their line because we cannot, in good conscience, before God. Uh, there's nothing wrong with justice. There's something wrong with the social justice ideology. There's nothing wrong with being against racism, but there is something wrong with this anti-racist ideology that says if you're not doing everything you can or you're not noticing every little possible way that racism manifests itself or uh, women's studies. You know, uh, this woman in the lengthier article, the full-length article here, says she grew up in a rather traditional home and she knew that women who had children at home were not oppressed. They chose to be there. They liked raising children. That was their nature. That's what they wanted to do. But she said all of her teachers tried to deprogram that out of her so that she thought that women who are at home are oppressed. And that is not a factual analysis of the situation at all. Uh, so this is a person who is on the inside and has come, has come out Interesting use of that phrase, isn't it? Come out of the closet, so to speak, on this. And uh, is giving us a warning. And we may be past the point of no return now at this point. It's, it is so uh, epidemic, pandemic in, in, uh, you know, in our society. Uh, but it's in, it's, in, it's in the West's academia. And it's, it's kind of crazy. I mean, I, I so, I, I've seen and read about um, people... Uh, Chinese people, for instance, who look at this and they say, these Americans are insane. They're doing crazy things, crazy stuff. They know it's, it's foolishness. Yes, do you have a comment or a question? 
Oh, yes. Yeah. So the, the clarification is this is in high school and it's bleeding down into now middle schools and influencing the teaching in elementary schools even. This is all connected too, also to the LGBTQ movement and uh, these other things are kind of all in a, in a, in a ball here. And, and we have to recognize that we're not talking about now, we're not talking about um, uh, liberal versus conservative. We're way beyond that. Liberal, you think liberal is like, like Democrats or left wing. It's, that's, that's so out of date that it's not even funny. The left today is the progressive communist the social justice left. It's these kinds of people. And they don't value liberal exchange of ideas. So Christians don't have a right to exist in their system. Uh, and even with um, uh, suggestions today of re-education camps for Americans who don't think the party line thoughts. Okay, so this is this is not this is not a joke, my friends. This is not like oh some conspiracy theory. I'm not a conspiracy theory guy. I, I recognize conspiracy theories and all of that. This is this is real stuff that's being taught and said today. Yes, sir. Yeah, that's right. But I'm talking about the, you know, as they call them, the tinfoil hat types. Yeah, right. Right. Oh, it's like, uh, it's like, um, you know, you're not paranoid if everyone really is out to get you. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. John, put up number seven, would you please? We're going to try to capture some of this. What should I call it? A hobby horse cautionary upset that I have? Yes. And I can say this because I have a card that gives me authority. Yeah. I happen to be an American who is black. Okay, did you hear that? This is an American who is black. Absolutely. A very fine Christian brother. And I've never been to Africa. None of my ancestors, as far as I can trace, have been to Africa. Mm -hmm. And if I could trace any one of them to Africa, which is viscerally impossible, because I have bisected genealogy in my mm -hmm. Which Africa? Yeah. There are 60 nations on the continent. Yeah, it's a huge place. And they do not consider themselves interchangeable. Correct. That's right. Kenyans are not Ugandan. That's right. But it's become so politically weighted in our country, in the educational system, to destroy Americanism that they have Pavlovian effect so that black Americans are now re-educated to the notion that your first loyalty is not America. It's Africa. Yeah. That's why you have to be called an African-American. That is lunatic. Yeah. 
to be technical. You're not African, you're American. But if you don't say that, you are assaulting the concept of diversity. Mm -hmm. Therefore, you are an offense. Yeah, see, that's the thing now. What they do is they take those who offend against their use of language, yes. or their use of whatever their pretend categories are, and they cancel you, criminalize you, yes. uh, you know, call you a racist. That's right. Or knuckle Tom. Yeah, that's right. Or knuckle Tom. Right. You know, it, it's a way of shutting down the correct concept of diversity. You have no right off this plantation. Get back here. Hmm. Right. Get back in this corral. We'll let you know what you need to know. If we want your opinion, we'll give it to you. <laughs> we'll give it to you. We won't ask you. Yeah. <laughs> and that is, I just gave that little uh, example. Right. Because it, it, rankled, it rankers me. Not the thought of someone saying it, I just know all the energy and where it's coming from behind it. Right. Yeah. Lots of people say those words without knowing all the implications yes, of what they're it, saying. It, they're being um, herded into this concept that you must say this. Yes. That sounds just like Big Brother. Yeah. You must say this or you must think this is yes. where we're headed. That's right. And you must not think Christianly that's because right. that's... That is an evil, this is how they say it, these things are evil because they don't match up with our ideology. That's, exactly That's why we say it's a religious zeal that drives the critical social justice ideology and related fields of thought because they have this idea that you are morally evil if you don't agree with them. And so much so that what I just said, in many of the circles of my own culture, I would be indicted. Yeah. What, for, what I just, for what I just said. Would, you, would it be correct for me to understand that you would be considered an Uncle Tom Generally speaking, by saying that kind of people stuff? People who know me personally wouldn't say that. Yes. But the body politic would say that. Yes. If I were at the rostrum and tried to make that argument to a general audience, mm -hmm. can I say this? <laughs> of diverse black Americans? Yes. I would be, uh, I would be judged as. Yeah, you'd be criticized. I'd be Uncle Tom. Yeah. Who doesn't know that he is that he is not free to be free. What they mean by that is, get in the herd, and you'll be free. Yeah. The idea of the herd and the herd mentality is one that. Uh, you perhaps have been uncomfortable with, as I have, that pushes against our religious liberty Amen. and our uh, understanding as Baptist people, if I can just put it that way, that we have uh, a right of conscience <laughs> to believe as we see fit and understand the Scriptures to teach us. And we can't, like Martin Luther, we can't do otherwise. We cannot be made to think a way that is foreign to our way of thinking, even though people would try to do that. And that's what the universities are doing. So this person in the longer form of the article says, look, get your kids out of schools, Amen. private school, home school, um, you know, other kinds of universities. I mean, I suppose, uh, you know, there are some universities that would work for you, you know, like uh, Hillsdale College or something like that, uh, west of here. But um, 
yeah, it's, uh, there are very few that don't have this kind of ideology uh, in them. But I bring it to your attention because it's something we want to know about, want to be aware about, want to push against, want to be able to say, you know, speak somewhat intelligently about, but also because it's going to come down to persecution for Christians and we need to be ready for this. It's not, it's not going to be exactly the same as you know, the Middle Ages kinds of persecution or you know, the persecution under the Roman Empire. It's going to be different, a different form, but it's going to be unpleasant nonetheless. Very, very different. So let us pray. Heavenly Father, we bow before You and ask You to give us wisdom and guidance. Help us to raise our kids and, uh, and maintain our churches so that we don't get swallowed up in this kind of uh, ungodly philosophy uh, that is, has, has such bad fruit. And Lord, help us to uh, live uh, for You in this uh, perverse and crooked generation. Thank You for these ones here today and for those watching online. pray that it's been somewhat helpful to them in these moments. And we look forward to You guiding us in these upcoming days this week. In Jesus' name, Amen. 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 All right. Good night to one and to all. The Lord bless you and keep you. We'll see you again soon. Good night.